or conceivably if he had come to the right place he had come at the wrong time having missed his destination by many revolutions of the planets many moons many stars many brown leaves falling on many graves and his own sorrow was naturally boundless though there was little he could do to rectify matters at this point in boundless space the Egyptian had danced, but Mr. Spitzer still had kept with his vast bulk, remarkably calm, unswayed by these excitements. It had been hard to convince the Egyptian, even by a legal argument, that he was dead. As Mr. Spitzer told my mother afterward, his forehead still gleaming with sweat gobules, of that enormous effort, that he had nearly had to put him out of the house forcibly, lifting him by his shirt tail. In fact, he had nearly had to call for the help, the police, though the police would have been a long time coming. He had been determined to get rid of him, for Mr. Spitzer's plight would be sad if his adventures should follow him to the one stable home he knew. He had been determined to keep his private life separate from his life of the streets. My mother, however, with her usual feminine fickleness, had already changed her mind, being as hard to convince of the Egyptian's reality as he had been of Mr. Spitzer's unreality, his lack of flesh and blood, of muscle and heart and confirmation why she wanted to know if this egyptian was not a spirit from the spirit world a denizen of the underground one of a damned or heavenly crew as she now firmly believed had he spoken to mr spitzer of his absence from the world for so long a dusty period of the horses no longer running which would come in first around the endless track his mouth foaming with victory as the crowd screamed like the long uproar of the surf why if this egyptian was not dead had he come to this old house in the first place looking for a dead lost brother and was mr spitzer absolutely sure he had not found him was mr spitzer sure of his own mind that he had seen and touched the gold tur turbaned and oily fellow that it was not simply illusion facing illusion my mother pretended that the real was the dream and the dream was the real she was not alone in this tendency, however, as she herself would sometimes admit, that it was, all things considered, a universal failure, that on which the whole of life depended. The condition of, conditions of mortal life were such that, for others as for herself, the dream must suffice, for reality bears with it always an aspect of fateful disappointment, of falling short, just through its being unreal, just through its being realized, through its omissions of other realizations realizations which had also trembled at the threshold of the jewel-framed door or were that contingent or were that contingent world one might have experienced by taking the other train through the other landscape if ears could see if eyes could hear if hearts could be everywhere and omniscient the dream was that which had no lim limitations no barriers no fence that which dissolved and changed before her eyes that which drew all fleeting images together more complete in their incompletion than if they had been whole and complete more real than life provided even though two moons should shine upon earth an endless gray horizon infinitely flat coming to no end for herself it was the bare reality she could not endure the void of disappointment the mere flesh and blood which was realized and had its limitations of old mortality that which she would leave to shift for itself to freeze to starve to wander in the cold while she wrapped in her ominous dreams and visions which were protective believed that she was still the most exposed of persons moving though she never moved confronted by dangers more beautiful than others knew or realized how could she know where these dreams would end how could she know where they had begun they were always present, crowding upon her, the wild horses screaming in an empty garden, the bloody head of Alcibiades staring through an upper window, 
Sometimes she thought she was a poor patient sleeping in a charity ward, that she only imagined she saw what she saw. Sometimes she thought she saw hospital nuns like great snowy birds, or dreaming against the clouded sky. They were the fleet, the ghostly regatta of sailboats, with their sails lifting, swelling in the wind. What was there, however, but the power of this vast, imploring deception, that which kept her alive, this compromise of death in the midst of life, this extension of existence which had deceived her? How did she know, she would sometimes complain, that she was not already blind? She having been threatened by hereditary blindness, that increasing stain, that she had not long years ago lost the omniscience of her sight, just in the flicker of an eyelid, that all these sourceless and illuminated visions were not merely her visions, deceiving her to believe that she saw them, though no one else should ever see them. How did she know that she was not already blind, being deceived egregiously by visions, all these visions floating incalculably in the air, multiplying, dividing, her solitude thus effaced, the atmosphere stained by tremblings of roseate light, by flowers that sprang from nothing, by emanations, intuitions, memories, veins of gold, curls of foam, human corpuscles, scattered hearts like motes dancing in a sunbeam? Who were all these demidryads? Who were all these truncated men? Who were these medusas with white owls perched upon their livid locks? Who else had seen her evening visitors, the headless horsemen, the wasp's nest hanging against the walls? Who else had seen Ben Johnson? She would call the well-trained servants in to ask if they saw what she saw. A great frog prince sitting at the foot of the bed, his eyes like headlights, his mouth snapping at flies, someone who looked like Mr. Spitzer, and the servants were very agreeable, only too apt to yield too quickly to her suggestions, to discuss the appetite of an imaginary caller or the number of eggs laid that morning by the lonely great auk who had no mate. If they agreed, her fury was intense. If they disagreed, her fury was greater. How should there be either verification or denial? How did she know, therefore, that she was not already blind, just like her poor mother, who had seen for many years not the cat, but the cat's tail, and then, for longer than anyone remembered, had seen nothing at all, only the absolute darkness and not one streak of light, yet had known every step, every inch, had been the most excellent housekeeper, threading her own needle in the evasive evening light, when others would have fumbled and recognized persons by their voices, their odors. Of the odors of their linens, even when they came back fresh from the laundress, had greeted the invisible visitor in the hallway with perfect assurance, had walked upright without swerving, though she was like a tall tower trembling in the wind, had measured all the dimensions, the windows, the walls, had fooled many of those who were closest to her, commenting often on how well they looked, or how pale, or what they were wearing had fooled the courtier with whom she discussed shades of color, blue and gray and rose, lengths of cloth and lace ficus and silver braids, the color of her fan, the color and length of her train, the milliner with whom she discussed her ribbons and plumes and garden hats, to keep her eyes forever in the shade, <clears throat> the black coachman with whom she discussed her piebald horses in the clouded weather, a streak of light, the direction of the winds, had made no mistake, had understood that there was a place for everything, had dusted the dark mirror before she looked into it, the pale depths reflecting her silver eyes and hair, had detected the crystal dust on a distant window-sill, that a carriage needed painting, that a driveway lamp was broken, that a lace curtain was torn, that a pillow was faded, and had spoken frequently and increasingly of the appearances, the visions, the beautiful world of light, the formations of the clouds, 
the stripes of the tiger lily, the spotted wing of the butterfly, the speckled bird's egg, the sunrise, the sunset, the glowworm shining, and had caused her husband to feel that, when she died, he could not see without her. He had begun to wear a dark eye-shade, perhaps to bring him nearer to his dead wife. He had felt that his eyes were gone, that his body was turning into starlight. When he was blind, he was gotten a seeing-eye dog, who had led him, old and stooped, through the garden. For a while, before anyone recognized this, and he himself had never known it, the old seeing-eye dog was blind, yet never lost his path or brushed against an obstacle as he led his old blind master upon his rounds. Thus did my father, mother's father spend his last years in the darkness waiting for the angel of light to come for him. He had walked in the evening in the garden he had planted for his blind wife, following those neat encircling paths where was no obstacle, no marble statue or bench. He had closed his eyes, reaching out to touch, to pluck those intangible flowers he might recognize only by their textures and their odors different from each other. In a long, chilly winter he had died. The old seeing eye dog had died, too, and was laid at his feet, but they had both already known the darkness. My mother slept for years, her eyes protected from the vulgar sunlight because already her visions were too many, the mirages, the maelstroms, the whirlwinds, her mind being that which could be orientated only through disorientation, through being forever lost. Sometimes her eyes enlarged, shining in darkness, she saw over her swollen head red-tinged balloon fishes with all their streamers streaming, and she was the drowned swimmer caught among these negligee ribbons born forever downward peering stonily at her through miles of opaque sunless water there might be gargoyle faces gods with their bulging heads livid mouths foaming curls sometimes she floated dead upon the surface her sightless eye her sightless face shadowed by clouds and seagulls and thus she stayed for hours staring at a dark and watery sky she had stayed under water for longer than anyone knew never for once losing her consciousness her awareness of events far ripplings, movings, stirrings, shadows. She had been everywhere in the world of water. A herd of barking seals would sometimes swim into her sheltered bedroom, the Eskimo hunter pursuing with his spear. Sometimes it was a drawing room with great chandeliers of ice, frozen fountains, cascades reaching from the sky. She had stayed under earth for six months at a time, frozen as crystal, had wandered through the world of the underground, plucked in that dark abode of shades the golden apples of Hesperides. Those which had turned to dust in her mouth had climbed Jacob's ladder to heaven or some more distant place which was nowhere but in theory. She had been herself only as she had been projected upon the consciousness of others. Fragments, a spirit easily broken, a flickering light that had gone out in minds less responsible and less responsive than hers. There was no bare, empty moment, none which might be, not be filled with the vast, splendid excitement. Lying in bed always and seldom visited by any real person, for most real, per for most real persons had forgotten her. She might think she was always elsewhere, that perhaps she was someone she had never met. She might always be the spectator in memory of some vanished regatta of ghostly sailboats, their wings as pale as moths, for she might always attend, in memory, a dazzling ball where she had danced with many partners, or she might participate again in those old, vague archery tournaments where... With her hat profusely veiled, she had lifted her veils and scarves long enough, only long enough to take aim at a wavering target. 
to fill those moments which otherwise might have been bare and empty and dark she might always return to the past as if it had not been lived that theme of affirmation which she had always known remember forever one lingering instant as of that day when twirling her white umbrella in the cold moon-washed roman sunlight she had refused gently and finally as she had hoped in a marble drawing-room furnished with a sarcophagi of angelic cardinals and children dead in infancy the young Mr. Spitzer proffered hand. His offer of marriage, due to his eager assurance that both of them should henceforth lead retired lives, that they should withdraw at an early date from the bitter world of this material chaos, he to write his beautiful and elegaic music, which all ears should hear, she to dream, providing those endless rapturous visions like bubbles of light, breaking on some far shore memories ineffable as an angel's wings intuitions moods harmonies temporal which he might encompass with the harmony divine the omniscience of love how she had answered only that heavily and with hesitant heart she must prefer his brother to him for if it had been a question of things physical there could have been no difference in her eyes but her preference was always his brother's wild worldly mercurial spirit not his and his brother had still been alive the better on horses which horse would come in first the one no one else had thought would win. So there had seemed to be a chance she might win his brother. She would m remember for hours on end Mr. Spitzer's withdrawing face, so like his brother's, his turning gradually away into the dusk, her feeling chagrin that there should be these great bodily resemblances beclouding dissimilars, a world of difference, that the Mr. Spitzer who loved her and had offered her his hand was not the Mr. Spitzer she loved and whose hand she might conceivably have accepted if ever it had been offered to her even in a moment outside of time propped up on her lace frilled pillows her cheeks heavily powdered her head roaring with dreams she might also live through all those old romances which had never taken place or she would ride in a corosa with a dead prince through narrow midnight streets past palaces like great warehouses or she would visit the house of some old friend whom she had never known in life before five minutes had passed she would have established the sympathies of a lifetime they would have discovered mutual acquaintances no matter what era it was to fill those moments which otherwise might have been void empty and dark timeless and without excitement she might also always go out riding with james still at the wheel though she surely knew that the ex-chauffeur had left her employment long years ago absconding with her old-fashioned automobile and its passenger when he might so well have taken her priceless pearls driving perhaps as far as alaska in a world of snow perhaps even farther evading the police in every mortal trace that james was absent made him always present still at the steering wheel just as he had been before an ex-convict who while in her services and upon parole to mr spitzer whose brother's friend had been he had been had preferred to keep his head shaven as his employment with her had seemed to him only the extension of his prison sentence there was still no freedom in his li in this life he had yearned for the open spaces for his untrammeled freedom to get away from civilization to shoot a moose and see the tears of the dying moose which takes a long time dying and he had been always taciturn and unexpressive she would only complain that she had not seen his face for years he was always still at the wheel his eyes steely with purpose his shaven head as familiar to her as if he had not long ago disappeared and he was still driving to alaska still evading of course the stupid police the mileage had increased beyond even that perilous and endless distance however for she was always riding with him talking through an imaginary horn her commands as imperious as they had ever been as helpless as ever he being insolent silent never answering her least remark her lips were so frozen she could hardly speak her limbs so cold she could bear hardly move 
her life unprotected, she being at the pity of this monster, her countless pearls running through her thin fingers, as many pearls as hailstones driving against the windshield. Why had she come so thinly dressed? She would often ask, if they were going to Alaska, that cold place. Obviously she should have been appropriately dressed for a journey into the freezing ether, that which caused her pearls and her opals to crack and broke her mirror into fragments. She would call for her white ermine stole, a pair of elbow-length lace gloves, her fan, her motor veil, her white garden hat, the things to keep her from the cold, her white umbrella or several white umbrellas, her smelling salts, her camphor, her lace handkerchief, for she was on her way to Alaska, a place of extreme coldness where the snow creeps down the mountains, where the animals put on thicker coats, where the snow dogs mush ahead of the sleds, where only a few Eskimos should be seen, a handkerchief dro dropping should cause a great hole in the ice, an avalanche of icebergs, a ghostly regatta. There would be great snowbirds with red bills and only a few patches of purple grass, and then there would be nothing. They started out definitely for Alaska, she and James, several years ago, he at the wheel. She would reason, so she simply could not understand to save her life, why they had never reached Alaska. His mountains cloaked with snow and ice, its corrugated lakes of silver stillness. Why? After all this mileage, all this gasoline, they were still pursuing the long, pale, monotonous street of an endless city something mercantile as she would say why they must pass the same tortured houses again and again or buildings only slightly different from each other piano tuning factories which had been closed for years although their signs were keyboards for years lofts dental supply establishments with signs advertising false teeth the blue the bulbous rainwashed dome of an old greek church in a neighborhood of extreme poverty the ferris wheel rested against the sky wheel which might be only a circle of seabirds why they were always crossing Brooklyn Bridge in that frozen, unholy atmosphere where the smoke of the ship's chimney was congealed in some terrifying shape, where the sound of the traffic whistle came always two seconds late, where the human voice was not heard until an hour or years after it had, after it had spoken. Home, James, she would say helplessly, for where is home? Home, James, for is there no turning? If we cannot get off the street, how do we get on it? Why this same barber pole always again? Why these great stone turtles? There's a stoplight, James, but go through the stoplight, for it will make no difference. Stop at the green light, James. Go through the red light. Pay no attention to the other drivers with cars and horses. James, do you hear my voice? James, why have you not answered me through all these years? The beauty, the fascination of James was that he, an innocent man, who had been falsely accused of rape by his last mistress, the ugly old woman, and who had served an unjust sentence breaking rocks for a state highway, the ex-convict whom my mother had employed at Mr. Spitzer's suggestion, and with full knowledge of his aggrieved history and of his desire for revenge against human society, an excellent shot who had practiced for years while in her service, and could not miss the seagull on the wing was plotting to kill her when they reached Alaska, an expanse of frozen waters between two ranges of ice-bound capes or crystal headlands. There where would be no one to hear her crying out, no one to follow her bloody tracks across the mesa of snow, but that his first intention, however, was to first kill her father, the old ritualist who was already dead, the old gentleman with the long white hair and the burrow's beard and star-lighted eyes, sometimes moving like Mr. Chandelier across the sky, sometimes part of the immovable starlight, there where the stars would be brightest and incorruptible. James would shoot at the starlight or at the shooting stars or anything which moved. The nights might last forever, or there would be only the most fugitive nights, nights separated from night by only a moment, the sun dipping below the horizon and immediately ar arising again. Knowing full well James's unswerving intention, that he was absolutely ruthless and determined and would stop at nothing, yet she was unable to call out for help, 
as she would say, for who would ever hear her in that frozen land where the bell clappers were broken? Her hands shivered with cold, and there were ice packs on her head, and she was eating ice cream, and she was driving forever in Brooklyn or some such foreign place in order to reach the hallucinatory goal, Alaska, that which she could not reach. The smell of magnolias made heavy the summer air. There were purple, tr purple trees like puffs of smoke. The numberless pearls ran through her stiffening fingers. It had not been her chauffeur upon whom her life depended, however. There had been many dead cells, and there would had been one and there had been none, she would complain. Her only faithful companion had been nothing human, only a plain little bird, only a yellow canary with a glassy eye and ruffled wing, and on this her life and everything else depended. This little yellow canary, sleeping in a gilded cage at her elbow, delicate as a puff of opium-colored smoke, its smooth head tucked under its wing, was all that had ever stood between her and tides of death, as she would, as she would used to say. And so long as this bird lived, she could not die. If ever this little bird went, then she must go, too, searching through all the realms of death with an empty bird cage and a package of bird seed in her hands. This little yellow canary, however, sleeping its life away, hardly ever moving, had been drugged by the poisonous atmosphere itself, perhaps by the opium in her gilded coffee cup, where it would perch for a moment after its bath, and it was as changeable as her own dead selves, for it had died already many times without her knowledge. She did not seem to know this, and if ever this little yellow canary departed from her as the others had, she would complain. If ever it went, taking her heart away as had her human companions, the fickle, the changeable, then she must go too, calling its name, and she should be no more. Perhaps, however, it might live forever, she thought, sleeping with its delicate head turned to one side like hers, dreaming its little canary dreams of moths and bumblebees and snails and flowers of other canaries. Perhaps if it lived long enough, it would be an octogenarian canary, and she, when she was old, as preserved as she had been when she was young and beautiful, no cruel ravagement of time ever to show upon her blissful features. So that was why she was always very careful not to disturb the little bird brain and its dreams and its tender visions, gentle and calm like hers, why the little yellow canary must have everything arranged for its convenience. Vases of minuscular flowers, a silken bed with a canopy and a soft pillow edged by lace, a dressing table with three gold-edged mirrors for the phantom birds, a marble bath, many objects for its pleasures, many swings. Yet though it nearly always slept, and she was very careful that it should not be awakened by anyone but her, it never sang. Because of its long existence and the tedium of the days, the endless nights, she gave to her little yellow canary many names, depending on her moods and her position in space, depending on where she was or might be when she was voyaging between two stars. Juniper, Tulip, Selene, Solomon, Methuselah, Marco Polo, Admiral Peary, Shackleton, Dante. Her canary, always the same canary and bubble of light, traveled with her through the ether and across the snow and across the waves. And she did not seem to realize, however as she never guessed, as even with her heightened sensibility she did not dream, her little yellow canary had deserved many names, and more than she had given, for there had been many little yellow canaries in this cage. She but presuming the continued existence of one, and an unbroken continuity of one small life in its dreams, this bundle of wilted feathers, and this glassy eye as transient as flowers in a world of everlasting snow, she would notice only perhaps a slight difference in the shade of the bird, and the bird renewed and sleeping at her elbow, its head tucked under its pale wing, and thus the illusions were sustained, even by precarious subterfuge. When one bird died, always when she was unconscious, too heavily freighted with dreams to move or stir or breathe her last, another was stealthily put into its place in order that, upon her regaining consciousness, she might not notice this loss of so small a factor in the external reality. 
that on which reality had depended, and thus she seemed to live.